Welcome to the Wage Indicator Podcast, a podcast where we highlight developments, best practices, events, research, and more on global issues on the gig economy. My name is Martin Aretz, and I am your host today. The platform economy has undergone a considerable evolution, and maybe even a revolution, in the past 12 years. I myself have been exploring platforms and their impact on people and society since 2011. I was not alone. During my quest, I met several other explorers. One of my traveling companions is Albert. I first encountered Albert in 2013, during the famous WeShare Fest. This was a festival at Parc de Lafayette in Paris, where 1500 entrepreneurs, professionals and activists gathered to discuss the development of the sharing economy. Although our paths split after this, we regularly met in unexpected places in the years that followed. For instance, Albert was behind the birth of the Wage Indicator Foundation's gig economy activities. In the past few years, Albert has focused mainly on issues surrounding the impact of technology and the future of work. Reason enough to travel to Barcelona to talk to him for the Gig Work podcast of the Wage Indicator Foundation about the developments of the platform economy and the impacts of technology on work. So Albert, thanks for having me. Can you tell me where are we? We are at the Barcelona Supercomputing Center, one of the largest supercomputers in Europe and the eighth in the world. I think it's also a nice vision of our conversation to, to today, because we know already for quite some years, I think about 10, 12 years. Really yeah, kind of 10, 12, yeah. Back to the days of the sharing economy. <laughs> and when I was traveling to, to Barcelona, where we are right now, uh, I was thinking, okay, how can we have a conversation with structure? Because we have so much to discuss. So I prepared something. And the structure will be, first, we're going to have to talk about the evolution of the platform economy. Then we're going to talk about from sharing to gig, because I think in the end it all started with the sharing economy, of course, depending on the definition you want to use on that. Then we're going to talk about the transition from gig economy to worker tech, and also with a big focus also on Latin America, where you also have lots, lots of knowledge about. And then we're going to leave the platforms. So then we go from worker tech via platforms to the impact of technology on, uh, on people that execute work. But maybe to start, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Albert Cañigaral. I started the journey by when I created the blog of Consumo Colaborativo back on 2011, 2012, to try to describe the movement of the sharing economy. At the beginning, it was collaborative consumption, and then it became a sharing economy. So copying some models from Richard Botsman or Anton and Leonard in France or other people in Germany and Italy, I decided to explain this phenomenon in the Spanish language. And so and through that, I got connected with the rest of people who had the same interest. And this is how I ended up in, in Wisher. In Wisher, I learned how the platforms are, are, are working and the topic where I decided to deep dive was in the area of the future of work. How I ended up collaborating also with the Inter-American Development Bank or Wage Indicator on these topics of, of the future of work. Two or three years ago, I also published a book on the future of work called El Trabajo Ya No Es Lo Que Era. Work is not what it used to be. Just kind of a vision, a little bit of the macro trends on how technology is impacting work and workers in different fronts. 
I spent a year and a half in the Catalan government as a general director for open data, transparency and collaboration. But there was a crisis of government and the minister who appointed me had to leave and I left with her. And that happened a year ago. So I'm back to my freelancing business where I devote some time to the future of work and I devote some time to artificial intelligence that is open source, open data, and speaks Catalan, Basque language, Galician, and so on. So, yeah, that's how we how we arrive here. Yeah, it's a quite, a, quite a journey. And I think how to describe your role best is, is also the, the bridge builder mm-hmm. that understands the language of the different institutions because language mm-hmm. is, I think, in many discussions, broader than mm-hmm. only a different language about do we speak... Dutch or English or whatever. Mm. No, and uh, yeah, trying to create narratives around complex topics like the impact of technology in work and workers. So try to have an, an, an overall narrative that helps to frame the individ- individual events, news, items, laws. No, yeah, I, I think I'm I'm, I'm quite decent, <laughs> decently good at that. And yeah, I'm bringing different stakeholders together because I like to I like a lot to listen. I speak, but I like a lot to listen to different people and different perspectives. And if you look back to, to the, the early days, so when the sharing economy, <coughs> first collaborative consumption by Rachel Botsman, then the sharing economy, the We Share Fest in Paris, which mm-hmm. was a fantastic event. It was more like a festival where every stakeholder within the sharing economy from the people with focus on commons to people focus on capital came to, together. Can you describe what you liked about this uh, this this uh, period? So, so what attracted you to the debate and also some critique on this time? Because I think everybody was quite naive, including me, in this time about, oh, nice, it's sharing and it's new and, and sharing will save the world. No, you already described it quite well. I think naive, being naive, we were a little bit naive on some of the initial approaches. I was attracted because my own lifestyle is try to have as low consumption. I don't accumulate many things. So for me, this access economy instead of ownership makes a lot of sense. I don't own a car. I don't own a bicycle. I don't own and I try to, I'm renting my flat. So, and that's on my own way of, of living. So these platforms for me were interesting from a personal perspective, but also from a societal perspective that creates some economic efficiencies and some environmental positive impacts when it's properly done. And I think that was my my initial my initial motivation. Then, obviously, all this narrative was captured by certain actors that were very very big and more into the capitalistic approach, who understood very well the power of the platforms as mechanisms of coordination and agreements at large scale and high speed. And then they created massive business, for example, no Airbnb in the area of rentals or Uber, and you know, that's a, the, the most well-known examples. And yeah, and we, I think, we felt a little bit trapped on on all these things because I think a lot of the WeShare people were more into the re, deep, deep sharing, let's say, and commons-oriented and open source and so on. But you, know, you learn a lot from from all that. And as you were saying, what was quite unique was this gathering of different stakeholders with very different perspectives in the same place for two or three days and probably breaking the usual silos and the bubbles. So it was a mix of different bubbles and it was very, very creative and very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you were doing some video recordings there, I remember. Many video recordings, yes. <laughs> check, check, check the YouTube. I think it's a crowd expedition. <laughs> yes. But they're still all online. Yes. And maybe... 
also to make the link to the gig, but also maybe already to the to the further points to discuss. And of course, then I will already break the structure, but that's how how life goes. <laughs> but maybe also in the sharing economy periods, maybe we, that we made the same mistake as we did with gig, putting too much focus on the platform as mechanism and not on the the transition of a different way of consuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's completely completely right. Sometimes no, because we were focused on the tool, and it was sometimes a little bit difficult to understand in advance all the impacts, all the the word I used in the book, and and I like to use this fragmentation. We we have we used to have a, something that was very solid with a lot of continuity over time. It was a long term working relationship, so employer employee. And now technology, which enables this matching, matchmaking, super fast, what creates is a fragmentation of these relationships, and that has a lot of positive impacts in terms of you are more free, more sovereign to work how you like, so more flexibility. But at the same time, certain things that were provided by this stability in the long-term relationship, not only social protection, but also access to colleagues, access to learning, to tools, that's missing when you have all this fragmentation. And especially, yeah, you need to rebuild social relationships Mm, and I, uh, for example, Wisher for me was my family, my tribe, my work, work-oriented tribe or family. We were not working together all the time, but we were developing as freelancers together on a similar space, and that was a that was a great learning for over, over this time developing myself as a freelancer in the context in the collective of Wisher. Yeah, so you were still part of something while doing your own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, yeah, because especially on the on the freelancing space, very often it's this idea of the solopreneur, almost like a superhero and so on, trying to solve everything by him or herself. And the reality, at least on my experience, is that it's much more interesting real, and, and less risky when you are surrounded by peers. And then you make your own agreement on how you want to work together. It doesn't have to be the agreement of a company or a co- or even a cooperative. Real solo never never existed in, mm-hmm. in life, I think, and that's also, of course, also within within freelancing and also in the gig economy. And then also, I think we are already making also the bridge from sharing to to gig to working via via platforms. Um, yeah, for me, the the moment of discovery. So I was organizing a Wish Fest in Barcelona in 2019, and. We organized a roundtable. It was the beginning of the delivery platforms. Deliveroo just arrived in Spain. Globo just was born. And the first conflicts emerged. There were the first strikes. So there was already social conflict around these platforms. And we actually organized a session. It's called Fishbowl, which is a kind of a roundtable debate where everybody can participate. And it was an enlightening moment because I saw the complexity of the topic because we had platforms, we had lawyers, we had workers, we had academics. And it was amazing to see the complexity of the impact of platforms on labor. This is how I bridge from the platform work to the, to the, to the geek. And what were the things that you saw happening that were different to the sharing economy except the complexity of the stakeholder in the debates? 
No, there was no, I would say, narrative on sharing. It's not you cannot share work. It was more really on the on the mechanisms of matchmaking, allocation, and then a lot of debates on the algorithm. No, algorithm as a boss. No, that was a sentence also back at the early days of this gig economy debate that your boss is an algorithm. So, and and then what is the positive and negative impact? I like a philosopher, Paul Virilio. He used to talk about integral accident which means that whenever you create anything, at the same time you make this idea or this product, you are creating its accident. So whoever invented the boat invented the sinking. Whoever invented a, a car invented the car accident. So whoever invented the gig platforms created both the positive and the negative at the same time. And it's not possible to detach one from the other. It's just being aware and spending as much time on developing the positive as minimizing or eliminating the negatives. And what are, from your perspective, most positive effects of, of, of or elements within the gig economy? No, I would say especially this idea of having more flexibility. You can design your work life with more freedom, maybe not for all types of jobs. Some of them might require more like still strict shift or string, but for our type of job, more the freelancing, consultancy, and that gives you really a lot of freedom on one side, but with certain structure also. So it's not... And at the same time, for the companies that start to use freelancing platform, for example, or platforms to source talent in general, it's a channel that is organized. And you have no, you have the terms and conditions, you have the algorithm, you will have the interface. So you are, if you want to scale, having a, a, a hybrid workforce with internal and external workforce, you need tools that will help you to repeat the process with all type of, of talent. So I think the platforms also create this structure. One side, they enable flexibility. On the other, they organize this flexibility. This also goes together because the platform as a, a private regulator creates an environment with the regulations mm -hmm. inside programs mm -hmm. under which you can be flexible. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's, but yeah, it's, uh, that's why I think they are, they, are, they are good. But on the other side, if there is no transparency on how all these internal rules are designed and probably as worker, I have no voice and I have no channel to, to, to raise my concerns, then obviously I feel very enslaved by this algorithm because I, I am powerless. So yeah, it's always an integral accident with any invention. And if you look also to the discussion of, of the, the status of the contracts, which is, uh, of course, a, a big discussion everywhere with a gig economy, because in the end, what platforms also are doing and what you also share in one of your reports is saying, okay, in the end, it's, it's also about unbundling the traditional employment contracts. Mm -hmm. If you took, because we're now talking about transparency, about, about representation, if you took somebody who's in a labor union, he or she will say, employ them, everything's sold, no problem at all. But in the end, we know it's not easy as that. So how do you look to this discussion? No, this is exactly how I arrived to the worker tech topic. I discovered worker tech with some consultancy companies in UK. I think it was called Inline. And then RSA, Royal Society and Arts, were doing some workshops around that. And it's exactly when you have an employment contract together with a stable salary, let's say, and a long-term relationship, you have a bundle of 
services and needs and rights that you are maybe not even aware that you have a place to work, you have colleagues, you have access to learning mechanisms or you can, you can uh, educate yourself, you have the right for collective representation and negotiation with a company or even sectorial sometimes. So you have, you have all these things, you know, access to medical insurance, civil insurance, a lot of things are bundled. Then when you leave this infrastructure of the con employment contract and you are a freelancer, you have the same needs, but the infrastructure disappeared. So you need to rebuild and rebuild all these things. So that this is the unbundling no? and rebundling as a freelancer. And this group of services that are using digital technologies to be efficient and to provide personalized services, this is what is, goes under the name of worker tech and started providing services, especially to riders and drivers, but now it's extended to also to cleaning services, but also freelancers and so on. And inter interestingly, some of the services, they are just like digital platforms, maybe in finance, in insurance, in, let's say, in money management, let's say, or these kind of things, or education, can also be used for by regular workers or even employees and people who have non-traditional jobs, but they are not using the platform. So we see it's an interesting solution to complement because some, so far, and we know a lot of the regulatory debates, it's everybody should be employed and there seems not to be other, others, other possible solution. So it's, it's a bridge. It's, it's a probably a temporary solution to cover a gap. And it seems that different territories and different governments have interest on in exploring this, this opportunity. We're now talking about, okay, you're a freelancer or you're employed, mm -hmm. but, but I think in discussion, there's one big missing third category, which is informal markets. Mm -hmm. Also in one of your reports, I, I quote, in, in Latin America and the Caribbean, out of a total of 292 million people employed, 185 million work in informal conditions, equivalent to an original average of 65%. So this is the informal markets, which also exist, and especially in different parts of the world, uh, it's it's bigger or or smaller. Mm. So what you can also say is that that those worker tech solutions also could really help a really big part of labor markets, which has n access to nothing because it's informal. Mm -hmm. For example, some weeks ago, I was doing some training in Latin America, remotely in Latin America, and we had the people from Zolvers Pagos. Zolbert is a, a, a platform for cleaning services. They operate from Argentina and other countries. So they have the solution of Zolbert Pagos, which enables to register the person who is doing the cleaning service in the, in the official registries, to make it transparent, to make it legal, to make it formal. It also enables to have a kind of a price range for the service and so on. But it was very interesting because this Solvers Pago service is available to the people who find job through Solvers and anybody else, through other platforms or just informal cleaning workers that would benefit from this worker tech service. So it's, 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 yeah, it's widening the, the scope. Yeah, so what you say is those, those worker tech platforms or providers, they're not only focusing on freelancers, but they're just focusing on everybody that's, that's, that's ex executing work, mm -hmm. and not depending on which kind of contract or not you have within the relation with the employer. Mm -hmm. No, sometimes just you are being paid late and these platforms can advance a little bit the payment or it helps on financial management in general because these people, they go day by day and they have no, not much chance. And sometimes just having a digital payment, there has been some studies from the Inter-American Development Bank, when you don't have cash in hand, 
you might you might be able to save more if you have, uh, there's a, like a behavioral economics studies on having digital payments and some of the, some of these platforms enable that is easier that you put aside some savings for the for the longer term for example other than if you have cash in hand so yep. these kind of things are also interesting to know yeah and you're also looking a lot also to to Latin America mm -hmm. uh, what I also always say for many times say in this podcast is that's that's when people are talking about a global debate they're talking about EU and, and US <laughs> and uh, as you know when you look at our beautiful globe there are much more very interesting continents floating around in the oceans probably even in many cases more interesting than than EU and US how do you look to this global debate and and and, and what do you think are we missing when we have a too much focus on, on, on US and EU? No, I think you made a very good point on this informal economy. So there are parts of the earth where a lot of the economy is informal. And first, acknowledging that and understanding that you need to bridge, maybe, and this bridge might not be the traditional employment. Just look at the at some other options, a way to formalize, to, to give access to, to rights and services to these non-traditional workers. I think if we only have one tool, we can, it's, we are limited in our scope. No, this idea of when you have a hammer, when when you have a hammer, everything are nails. No, everything looks the same. So you only have one tool. So I think these uh, we need to, to yeah to have a, a diverse uh, approach in trying to look for different solutions for the same question. Let's say, but the question is not how to for me how to make everybody a traditional employee. Is how to provide guarantee the rights that they have and to provide a good working conditions for as many people as, as possible and these tools seem to be seem to be a, a way to do it and in Latin America I wouldn't say the discussions are in regulatory terms are much more advanced there's a lot of conflict like in in Europe or the US they look a lot towards these markets and they try to replicate some of the ideas sometimes it doesn't make that much sense especially because nothing has been really solved in a, like in a proper way either in even in europe or the or the, or the us mm. but yeah especially one other challenge for this mar specifically for these markets is the 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 challenge of the brain drain no because people with good education using platforms they can work worldwide so they are better paid so that's one of the challenges that these countries are facing compared to maybe Europe or US as a side effect of the gig economy or the freelancing or digital, on digital platforms it also reminds me to to a case of uh, of Malaysia when covid started then there was huge unemployment and then the government said okay we're going to train our people in digital skills and also help them to work via platforms like Upwork to get access to a global labor market no which again in the short term it's a, it's a quick fix and a way to get income opportunities to the people but at the same time you might be limiting your own companies in your country to access this talent that has an easy way and easy access to international markets. So yeah, I need to, to be careful how you deploy this type of policies. I'm not sure what has been the result of, of that in Malaysia. I don't have a... You, do you know how... No, no, okay. but, but we can invite him for a, for a podcast. <laughs> so that's, that's will be one of the topics probably in 2024. Yeah. But yeah, I think, it, it, I think it's really good to mention that, that you really need to, to also research and experiment to see, okay, so what are the, the effects and also the side effects? And what, what I also hear also in, in Indonesia, that many educated people are now entering gig platforms for delivery. 
because it's easy to get access and they can get work ever somewhere else. But that also is negative for a already precarious group of workers, mm-hmm. which are the original gig workers. It's always important to to look to that. And I think it's also really important to acknowledge that there there's never a quick fix in life. Mm-hmm. Also not in the gig economy. And if you go to the worker tech, so what was for you then the bridge from the from the, the gig work to the to the worker tech, which is still I think quite still focused on platforms, but still it, it's it's now going broader. No, especially I would say in, in this area of, of, of worker tech is that the platforms or these worker tech solutions end up specialized in a specific vertical. So it's not the same the solutions that are catering for drivers and riders than the solutions that are catering for digital freelancers, let's say. They have similar needs, but you, you see that platforms are, are developing in different directions. Another interesting insight, what, what we discussed before, that that goes beyond the platform work into the informal work, and that has a potential enormous benefit, even in countries where platform work is not well developed, but that could be an interesting stepping stone to formalization of work. And then there was also the insight of the conflict, potential conflict between the public sector initiatives in countries where you have social security, pension systems, and so on. If, with all these solutions, are we creating a parallel private system, which is at some extent competing with the public traditional one, how to bridge these two and how not to create a competition, it's not obvious. The systems are still quite small, so it doesn't create this big, big tension. But over the years, I think that could be a source of conflict. But I think when you change the word compete, so compete from private to public, Mm -hmm. to challenge that private challenge public, so... Maybe it's also a way for for institutions and countries to say, okay, maybe we're also open for other stakeholders. So if you can do it better, challenge us and and help us. And of course, I think there's almost no discussion within these developments on on which words we use. And I think it makes a big difference when you when you change the competes to to challenge, because then you also yeah are looking at from from a more positive or possibility way or context. What you described requires a mature government to understand that at the end the important is to provide these services to the workers and the provision can be on a traditional public channel or maybe, as it already happens in education or in healthcare in many countries, it's a mix of public provided hospitals and private hospitals with an agreement to bridge customers or, or people from the from the public sector. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very good point and probably again from education or or. or or health services, maybe we have a blueprint or a model that we can be inspired in order to create this this mix. Yeah, and maybe even create a exit to government. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a, it's also, of course, of course, possible. I think we need, we really need to think different about this innovation because I think we need it because else society will will get stuck, and mm. it's not good for for nobody. What I also see is that for the gig economy. Um, they were really bad in, in, in joining forces because when there was a lawsuit against Uber, nobody wanted to be associated with Uber. So, so because they were really in their verticals. And, but I think that's just my gut feeling, and I hope that you can elaborate on that. That's when 
getting the focus or the starting point from worker tech, it's much easier to, to collaborate because worker tech is, is about the technology having impacts on the worker. Because you also see, let's say, also in Africa, there's also the Job Tech Alliance where I think about 60 or 80 platforms are, are together uh, and talking about uh, worker tech. How do you experience that also with your experience in Latin America? So, for example, there's a well-known case of Nippy in Argentina, who is probably the most prominent and well-known worker tech startup. Also, they provide a lot of services, mostly focused on delivery platforms, but it happened exactly what you described. So, they've been the focal point and their point where platforms could collaborate because they, they, they saw that even sometimes the riders are multi-homing, they use different platforms. So it didn't make sense to try to provide these services on individual basis from the platform perspective, but it makes more sense to have this central point where they can have, for example, a place to rest. Uh, in the city where they can go and rest for a while. It doesn't have to be from a platform. In this case, it's a Nippy stop and different platforms uh, make the agreement with Nippy so they're workers. And sometimes it's not a worker of a platform. It's a worker who has two or three platforms active at the same time. So it doesn't even make sense to try to filter so much. And yeah, that, that's an interesting case, as you were saying also in the in the Job Tech Alliance in, in Africa. Yeah, yeah, I really like it because I think we need to have more collaboration. And then it's also easier for governments to have a, a, a trade body to, to talk to and to learn mm -hmm. from and, and to discuss and to argue with and do everything. So I think it's, that's, uh, that's good. Um, and I think now then it's time for the last step to go from, from worker tech, still quite a focus on platforms to the impact of technology on workers. I'm, I'm also really wondering in the whole gig debate, and I also have, some, have quite some discussions with academics where, where I say, okay, before platforms, you didn't care for the workers at all because nobody was caring for delivery workers or domestic cleaners. But now platforms are there, you care. And I think they still don't care about people no offense, sorry for who's listening, but because now also it's still the focus on the impact of technology on work. And we all know that the technology, what you also describe as worker tech, starts within platforms because they are a digital first environment, really small gigs. So everything that you do manual on a transaction will cost you money, so you need to automate. So I think platforms, they are the perfect breeding grounds and also the experimentation area for these, these new technologies that are now also much more broader visible within the labor markets. Uh, and then we're talking about also about the discussions about algorithms, transparency, these kind of stuff. How, how do you see that? I have a friend who describes that we're in the middle of a massive transition. A lot of people say that, but from the industrial work to the industrial society to the digital society and we are the sons and the daughters of the industrial society in terms of the mental concepts the mental frameworks we use to relate to work the institutions how to access to certain protections and then we see this other digital society creating all the disruption And in the same way that the first and the second industrial revolution, they created a number of institutions around work in terms of standard education for, no, in order to get workers, social protection, the 40 hours labor week, the weekend, the holidays, the pension system. So we need a similar revolution or a similar construction of institutions around the work in the digital era. 
some of them might be universal basic income because maybe work is not as central as it used to be in the industrial era. We are moving to a place, so we need to have work, but maybe the income will be guaranteed in another in a different way. Instead of having a full a full employment or unemployment, so it's binary situation, maybe we need to something which is more gradual. Maybe I can be half unemployed, so I can still have a subsidy, but I will be doing some some gig gig works. No? So. And a lot of this, for example, collective agreement that is not possible for freelancers because that creates an anti-competitive scenario in many regulations. That doesn't make sense in that, in that industrial society. So we are in this transition. And in the same way, we are the sons and the daughters of the industrial era. We are the fathers and the mothers of the digital one. And... Everything seems that it's going very fast and it's very hectic, but at the same time, we know that these societal transitions and institutional change or institutions creation, so there will be an evolution, so there will be a new institution, takes decades. And we see that with the gig economy. The gig economy debate has been here for, what, 12, almost 15 years. It's still not solved. And I think at some point we will decide that, okay, we need to approach that with a new with a new perspective. But my point is that we are in the middle of this transition, which is a little bit uncomfortable position. We're like, you know, we were born in last century. We live in this century, which is quite disruptive and sometimes a little bit uncomfortable to live in. So, but yeah, that's my, that's my take. But I think maybe there is also a challenge that also the institutions need to reinvent themselves uh, or, or reinvent or, or be replaced. And of course, that's, I think, in, in a transition, the, the hardest mm-hmm. point to make. Yeah, yeah. We see especially around work, for example, no, trade unions. We see trade unions were born and raised and had a massive impact on the industrial setup of work. And now they are struggling to have the same representation and the same impact on this more fragmented work because the time and space is not continuous, as we were talking at the beginning. It's fragmented. So the impact that trade unions can have is different. That's why we, we see all these type of new organizations emerging. I think you had a podcast with James Farrar from Worker Info Exchange. For me, it's one of these new institutions where workers, in order to guarantee their digital rights and access to their own data, it's very hard to do it on individual basis. So you need a collective institution. In this case, in this case, is Worker Info Exchange, who is the, the central the central piece in order to facilitate the ex- to exercise this right that I have as a worker, at least in Europe with the GDPR. So we, we see all these bits and pieces, like these weak signals in terms of forecasting here and there. And I think we'll see some institutions evolving, some institutions disappearing, and some new institutions emerging. But it's hard to predict what is going to happen where. Yeah, yeah. I love when you said weak signals. I I could also translate translate that to to the word hope. And what you also say about, okay, so we were children of the the last revolution and we're now parents. Mm -hmm. And that also reflects also to to, acting as an adult and also look to the facts and taking also responsibility in in that. I think that's really important. Also, maybe also, you already talked about the basic income, but also think maybe about a different definition of work because we now only see work of the, the, the work you execute where you get paid for. But of course, there's lots of work. I have three small children, so I know there's also lots of work I'm doing without being paid. And in the end, it's all worth it, everybody say, but in the end, you don't get paid for that. But yeah, uh, to get a society running, 
that also needs to be done and also be evaluated. So maybe it's also a, a good momentum to also look different to the definition of of what is uh, what is work. No, oh, no, and even this is the, the let's say the, the free work or the care work. No, that happens as you say. A society would just collapse if we stop doing that. It would just if you only do paid work, uh, the society will not work. And as a basic principle, and it's an opportunity to um, have into the table this debate of the, the proper definition of, of work. And, and also this idea that the paid work has to be 40 hours a week always. So when I work with some of the people who are trying to, to help disadvantaged people to find work, they only offer 40 hours a week work positions, maybe a part-time or something more irregular, but enable a better fit with the lifestyle of certain certain people. And for example, if you are, need to take care of family or kids. Uh, that, so it's important in this definition of work that we also introduce flexibility. No, now we have, a, at least in Spain, a lot of debate on the four, four days week, working week. So maybe that will be the norm in few years, decades, I don't know. Be creative, yeah. And I think, and, and linking with the, the end of the book, there was a chapter of seven ut utopias for realists. So I think we need to be utopian on this imagination, on this adulthood that you mentioned. We need to defend utopian results of the use of technology in the work environment. Utopia is a place where, that you never reach but it still inspires you to keep moving. So I think we need to set these utopias and, and then move as close as possible to them. Yeah, I think it's a good one because that also challenges you to have ambition. And I think ambition really is not there in, in many debates. And when you have a, a utopian scenario, you need to have ambition because else you won't get any further on that. And then the last question, if you look, okay, so we're looking now on the impact of technology on work. So what are, from your perspective, the, the most important topics to tackle to really secure the status or the, the rights of the worker in the, in the future? I would say the first key element is collective action, because in the way that digital rights are set, are set to be defended at individual basis, and that's impossible, that's not effective. So the first is we need collective, and in this case it's collective institutions, collective organizations, in order to organize and to guarantee that these needs and these rights are fulfilled. And then on the space of rights, I think probably that the most important would be the automated decision-making transparency, It's not always algorithms, that's why I'm using algorithm transparency, which is like the buzzword, let's say, but it's automated decision mechanisms. And in that space, you need to be transparent on when they are there, because sometimes they are not disclosed, so you need to explain when they are there. Then you need to explain how they work, so the explainability of, these, of the systems. And in order to do assessment, evaluation, and this kind, they need to be replicable. So a researcher or a regulator should be able to take the system and isolate it in a, like a sandboxing, test it, and see what are, what are the impacts. I think I'm quite really focused on, on, on improving this situation because I think this is critical. And obviously related to that is the, the data rights, no? the other side of the coin. But that's why the work of Worker InfoChange and other, and other initiatives that are creating these collective institutions around data 
In Europe, in the AI regulation, in the Data Regulation Act, we have the data cooperatives, data unions, data trust. There is a very interesting paper from the Joint Research Center (GRC) on new institutions for collective organization of data that was published like a few weeks ago. And you see, and I think we need for the data, and it also these collective institutions. But yeah, one, not individual but collective action. Anything related to algorithm transparency, explicability, and repl replicability, and, and data management for a fair data, and not only for work. I think it's just in general in society, we need to move towards a, a fair data economy that we don't have at the moment. These three, they are still really also from a more regulation perspective. Do you mm -hmm. also see a a role for a more public infrastructure? Yeah? Today you showed me here in the center where you are right now two supercomputers which are, are owned collectively by the European Union. And of course, le legally, it's, it's probably lots more complex, but I just summarize it like, uh, like, uh, like that. And we have as a society a lot of physical infrastructure, the roads, everything, but there's still a lack of, of a digital infrastructure. Yeah, there are some, yeah, so like the supercomputers super, super here in Barcelona and more, but do you also see a role for, for that? Well, we see the digital decade Europe policies that go into this digital sovereignty, an open Europe, an interoperable Europe that go exactly in this direction. We see, for example, data spaces, something called also edicts which is a new type of infrastructure, shared infrastructure in Europe. I think we are in, a, in, Europe, in Europe, we are in a good position in order to move towards this shared infrastructure. It's very interesting also what's going on in India with open digital commons. They talk a lot about during the last G20 summit there. It's quite impressive what the government is doing, is doing towards that. We have also examples, well-known examples like Estonia and so on. But I would say India is probably a place also to look on that space for this shared digital infrastructure. And just a, a last, last thing you, you, you helped me remember with the supercomputer. Traditionally, these supercomputers have been used to research on life science or health science, climate change, this kind of thing. But here in Barcelona Supercomputing Center, there is a new line of research, is the computational social science. So in the same way, we do we take massive amount of data to do climate prediction and climate simulations. There is a line of research where we can take massive amounts of data to do um, work prediction, economic prediction, labor market prediction, and so on. And we should not miss this opportunity because I think we can also have better public policies if they are informed with all this technology. And I think there's lots of things that are, are happening everywhere. Maybe we should start a platform where we can display all these credit initiatives because there's also quite a really huge internal information asymmetry, of course. Yeah, man, at the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Okay, Albert, thank you very much for this nice conversation. My pleasure, Martin. Catching up and looking back with his good friends on the developments of the platform economy gave me new insights. We both started our research journey in the sharing economy and later turned the focus to the gig and platform economy and the future of work. The impact of technology on people, organization and society was the common threat. Albert explains that we are in the midst of our major change. In my opinion, platforms are a logical testing ground for technologies that will eventually impact the entire labor market. Just look at WorkTech which was born out of a platform economy needs, but also offers many benefits for other workers. Increasingly, 
WorkerTech is also available to all workers, self-employed, employees, or them working in the informal market. The reason these kinds of startups fit the needs of modern working people so well is because they can develop and adapt faster than existing institutions. Finally, we discussed how social security can be shaped. It will be interesting to explore how we can rebundle these kinds of securities so that they do not only suit permanent salaried employees, but are also to all kinds of workers. Indeed, in the Western world, many securities are linked to the permanent contracts, but this is not the case at all in many parts of the world. Moreover, in many countries the informal labor market is large. In Latin America, 65% of people work in the informal market. At other places in the world, this percentage is even much higher. Currently, they are invisible to all institutions and have no protection at all. Platforms, as a gathering place, can give structure to the fragmented group of informal workers, bring them together and give them access to the securities and protection of worker tech. So, especially in the non-Western world, this can be a substantial improvement. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Also check our weekly newsletter and online webinars on the global gig economy. You will find the links in the show notes. Goodbye.